You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. John chapter 9, we're going to begin reading at verse 13. They brought to the Pharisees the man who was formerly blind. Now it was a Sabbath on the day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Then the Pharisees also were asking him again how he received his sight. And he said to them, he applied clay to my eyes and I washed and I see. Therefore, some of the Pharisees were saying, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, how can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said to the blind man again, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? And he said, he is a prophet. The Jews then did not believe it of him that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the very one who had received his sight and questioned them, saying, Is this your son who you say was born blind? Then how does he now see? His parents answered them and said, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees we do not know. Or who opened his eyes? We do not know. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews. For The Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. For this reason, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So a second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He then answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. Let's pray together. Our Father, it is to Your Word now that we turn, and it is our desire that we might hear from You through Your Word. We thank You that You have written down Your will and Your revelation of Your nature and Your grace to us, that we might forever learn and that we might forever bask in the truth of who You are and what You have given to us. We pray that in going through Your Word today that You would send Your Spirit to be our guide and our counselor. Give us illumination in Your Word, we pray. May Your Word be our guide and may Your glory be our everlasting concern. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we are studying John chapter 9, and it is quite a cast of characters that we are introduced to in this ninth chapter. And they kind of come into the narrative as the reaction to this man's miracles begins to unfold. And one of the stark, uh, one of the stark elements of this chapter is the contrast between these different peoples and these different groups. We have, for instance, the man who was formerly blind, who now he can see, and once he can see physically with his eyes, he sees more than just the things around him. He actually begins to see everything much more clearly. And then you have men who have been able to see all their lives, but really are blind to the truth that is right before them. And these men, as we are going to see as we work our way through John's the ninth chapter of John's Gospel, these men are spiritually blind, and we're using the terms sight and blindness sort of in two different senses. We're equivocating a little bit because we're talking about spiritual sight and we're talking about spiritual blindness and physical sight and physical blindness, these men who can see physically are blind spiritually. And as we work our way through this, we are seeing that they are blind spiritually. And you're going to see today, they are quite willingly blind spiritually. It is not that they don't, it's not that they cannot see the truth. They can see it, but they prefer to remain in darkness and that makes them blind to the truth. They understand exactly what has happened and they are confronted with the facts. They know what the reality is and yet they willingly choose to believe some of the most absurd things rather than simply believe the truth 
of what is in front of them concerning who Jesus is and what he has done. They are willingly blind. In fact, one of the things that John shows us as we've been going through his, this gospel is that those who are blind to the truth are blind willingly. They do not want to know the truth. And the, the problem with them is never a lack of evidence. Evidence is never the issue. It's always a love for darkness. In fact, John told us that. Jesus told us that in John chapter 3 when he said that men do not come to the light because they love darkness. It's the love for darkness, not the lack of evidence. It's the love for darkness. Always it is. Unbelief is always due to this love that people have for darkness. And listen, no amount of evidence can make somebody who loves darkness leave darkness. No amount of evidence can make somebody who loves darkness leave darkness. And we're seeing that in John's Gospel. In fact, it's after the very last miracle, the raising of Lazarus from the dead, the last miracle recorded in John's Gospel, that John writes this in chapter 12, verse 37, But though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. Did you hear that? This is marvel. This is a marvelous thing. And I mean marvelous isn't something that causes you to marvel. It is a marvelous thing that these people, though Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, they were not believing in Him. Because the issue was never a lack of evidence. These people saw the man born blind. They heard the testimony of the man. They heard the testimony of his neighbors. They heard the testimony of his parents. They heard again the testimony of the man. And they refused to believe that. They would not believe in Jesus. Not because they lacked evidence, but because they loved darkness. And that's what we're seeing in this ninth chapter of John's Gospel. Last week, we saw the reaction of his neighbors. When he came back into his neighborhood and saw Mr. and Mrs. Levi and waved to them, people saw immediately that he could see. They realized it was not a case of mistaken identity. This is the one who used to sit and beg. He was formerly a beggar. Now he can see. And they asked him, how is it that you regained his sight? And he said, the man who is called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to wash in the pool of Siloam. So I went and I washed and I see. And then the neighbors asked him, where is he, this Jesus? And he didn't know. And so he tells him, I don't know. And then they take him immediately to the Pharisees. And that brings us up to verse 13. Verse 13, sorry, verse 13, yeah, verse 13 is where we're at this morning. They brought to the Pharisees the man who was formerly blind. Now we're going to look at verses 13 through 17. Now it was a Sabbath on the day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. And the Pharisees also were asking him again how he received his sight. And he said to them, he applied clay to my eyes and I washed and I see. Therefore, some of the Pharisees were saying, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, how can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said to the blind man again, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? And he said, he is a prophet. Now the they that is mentioned in verse 13, they brought to the Pharisees the man who was formerly blind. That's a reference to his neighbors. The neighbors saw him and recognized that he could see and they wanted to know where Jesus is at. And not being able to get an answer of where Jesus is at, they decided to take this man to the Pharisees. Now these Pharisees, these are the legalistic, self-righteous rulers of the Jews. Uh, John uses sometimes the word the Jews in his gospel to refer to this sort of ruling elite class of Pharisees. Now there's some question as to why they would have brought the formerly blind man to the Pharisees. And you have to, you have to marvel at how John uh, describes this man who was formerly blind. Do you notice it in verse 13? They brought to the Pharisees the man who was formerly blind. So if John is reminding us again, remember, he was blind and now he sees. And there is irony here. They brought the man who was formerly blind. Now he can see. They bring him into the presence of the Pharisees, whom we are about to see, are completely still blind. The, the man who was formerly blind can see. In fact, he's seeing with greater and greater clarity with every passing moment. But those who should be able to see are completely blind. So now you have a man who was blind, now he can see, and this man is sitting in the presence of those who can see but are still blind. Do you notice the irony there? 
Okay, they brought to the Pharisees the man who was formerly blind. Now there's some question as to who these Pharisees were and what group were they. It's possible that by Pharisees, John means the entire ruling class of the Jews, which would have been the Sanhedrin. That would have been 70 or 71 uh, Jews who ruled over, they were sort of the ecclesiastical body over the Jewish life in the temple. They were responsible for temple worship. They were responsible for the religious uh, life of the Jewish people and all of that. They would make rules and laws and there were 70 of them or 71 of them, depending on which historical source you're referencing, but 70 of these men who ruled the entire nation. It's possible that John means the whole Sanhedrin. But the Sanhedrin is made up of scribes and Sadducees as well as Pharisees. So most likely, John has in view here a smaller sort of subgroup of the Sanhedrin. One thing that we do know for sure, they had, to, they had the ability to act in an official capacity on behalf of the other rulers of the nation. Look at verse 22. When they bring this, this man's parents into stand before this crowd, uh, this group of Pharisees, his parents are fearful of what this group can do. What can they do? They can exclude them or excommunicate them from the synagogue. In fact, in verse 34, that is what they do to this man who was formerly blind. They said, you're born in sin, entirely in sin, and yet you're teaching us, and so they put him out of the synagogue. So this sort of subgroup of Pharisees acting on behalf of the Sanhedrin has ecclesiastical authority over the Jewish people to exclude or to excommunicate people from the synagogue if they desire to do so. So this is some sort of a ruling body with an official capacity. Now, why did his neighbors bring this man, the man formerly blind, to the Pharisees? What is their skin in this game, as it were? Why did they do this? Now, if we wanted to put an entirely positive spin on their actions, we might say that maybe his neighbors were so thrilled with the man's miracle, so excited at this evidence that Jesus was the Messiah, that they wanted to bring this man to their Jewish leaders whom they knew opposed Jesus and sort of give them evidence. See, Jesus is the Messiah. Look what he did for our neighbor. That would be a pretty positive assumption, wouldn't it? There's nothing in the text that indicates that they had anything positive in mind when they brought this man to the Pharisees. I think the reason that they bring him to the Pharisees is in verse 14. It was a Sabbath when Jesus healed that man. That's why they're bringing this man to the Pharisees. In verse 12, they asked the man, where is Jesus? This man didn't know. He had never seen the man that gave him sight. The first time he saw, he was washing clay out of his eyes. He couldn't have picked Jesus out of a lineup. So he has no idea where Jesus is at. Unable to put their hands on Jesus... These neighbors take the man, which this man really is the next best thing, to the Pharisees to present him. Because this creates a theological dilemma that I think the neighbors understood. And we're going to get into it in just a moment. The neighbors understood this. This creates a quandary for them. So they bring the man to the Pharisees. Maybe the, maybe the Pharisees can get more information out of it. And they can pursue and chase down this Jesus. I think really behind the desire to take this man to the Pharisees is a desire to get a Jesus. It's Jesus that they're after. And by the way, you understand that in all... Anytime that anybody hates us as Christians, persecution of the church, people hating us, people opposing Christians, it is always due to the fact that they hate Jesus, not that they hate us. It's not that they hate us. It's not The world doesn't hate Jim Osmond just because I'm Jim Osmond. I mean, there's plenty about me that's hate-worthy, I understand that, but they don't hate me just because I'm Jim Osmond. They hate Jim Osmond because he represents Jesus Christ. They hate you because you represent Jesus Christ. And the closer you represent Jesus Christ, and the more your light shines, and the more bright you are, the more the world will hate you. That's why all who are live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution, Paul says. It is through many trials and tribulations that we must enter the kingdom of God. Unable to put their hands on Jesus, they will go after the next best thing. When those who hate Christ persecute his church, 
They persecute the church because Jesus is not here for them to beat and to whip and to oppose. And if he were, they would continue to beat him and whip him and to oppose him. But they have done everything that they can do to Jesus. Now he is out of their grasp. They cannot get at him. So they go, go after the thing that reminds them of him most. And that is the true believer. That's why they persecute the church. That is why these neighbors go after the man who was formerly blind. They don't can't get to Jesus. If Jesus had been standing there, there's no doubt in my mind that they would have tried to seize him and take him to the Pharisees. And they are trying to persecute him. Now look what John says in verse 14. Now, it was the Sabbath on that day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. I love sometimes, I love all the time in Scripture when I discover things like this, but when you, when, you, when I see a, a, a literary a literary device like this in a, in, a, in a passage of Scripture, it thrills me. John is a phenomenal uh, writer. He's a good writer. Because verse 14 is one of those little details that John sort of puts into the story at just the right time to give a plot twist. He puts this in, this detail, that it was the Sabbath in after the miracle, after the response to the miracle, and after they bring him to the Pharisees. That's when we finally find out for the first time that this happened on a Sabbath day. Jesus, John did this back in John chapter 5 after the healing of the man at the pool of Bethesda when Jesus said, pick up your pallet and walk. It's not till after the miracle and after some response to the miracle that we find out it was the Sabbath day when Jesus did this. See, if you were a first century reader and you were reading this for the very first time, you would have read about the miracle and you would have said, wow, that's incredible, that's good, that's some good stuff. That's amazing, I'm rejoicing with this man. Then you would have read about the, the neighbors who responded to this and that would have thrilled your heart. Then you would get to verse 14 and you say, oh. See, that's what we call a little plot twist, that it was the Sabbath. Had it been any of the other six days of the week, no problem. But this little detail, now it was the Sabbath when Jesus healed the man, when he made clay, and made him see, that's the little plot twist that all of a sudden makes this whole passage very, very thrilling. But it was the Sabbath. This is not the first time that Jesus has run aground on the Pharisees', Pharisees Sabbath traditions in healing a man. It goes back to John chapter 5. And I want you to turn back there just for a second. I'm going to read you a couple of verses. John chapter 5. And I want you to remind, this, remind you that this has been a theme that has been plaguing Jesus in his confrontation with the Pharisees throughout John's Gospel. In John chapter 5, Verse 5, a man was there, that is at the pool of Bethesda, who had been ill for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been a long time in that condition, he said to him, do you wish to get well? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I am coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your pallet and walk. Immediately the man became well and picked up his pallet and began to walk. Now if the narrative stopped right there, if there were no other details, then the rest of chapter 5 wouldn't exist. But the rest of chapter 5 exists because of the next sentence. Now it was the Sabbath on that day. See, that's the plot twist. That's the rub right there. In fact, this happens 18 months before the events in John chapter 9. And you can see that the uh, this event in John chapter 5 was still rubbing the Pharisees wrong 18 months later. Turn over to John chapter 7 real quick. I'll remind you that all of John 7, all of John 8, and all of John 9 happened within a period of about a week. The beginning of John 7, Jesus came to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths. And so John 7 is his teaching at the feast. John 8 is his discourse and controversy with the Pharisees at the feast. And then John 9 is his, him healing a man on the very last day of the feast. But look what Jesus says in John chapter 7, verse 22. Uh, verse 21, Jesus said to them, I did one deed and you all marvel. For this reason, Moses has given you circumcision, not because it's from Moses, but from the fathers. And on the Sabbath day, you circumcise a man. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses will not be broken, are you angry with me because I made an entire man well on the Sabbath? See what he's doing? He's pointing out their hypocrisy. 
He's referring there to the event back in John chapter 5. This is 18 months later. He's referring there to the event back in John chapter 5 of healing the man at the pool. Do you get mad at me because I made a man well on the Sabbath? Now listen, keep this in mind as you turn back to John chapter 9. That little discussion with the Pharisees about the Sabbath and the ability to do good on the Sabbath happened just a few days prior to this miracle in John 9. 7, 8, and 9 are all happening within a week. So that contra Jesus is discussing with the Pharisees his authority and his right to do good on the Sabbath in John 7, verse 22 and following. That's happening just a couple of days before he goes and heals this man on the Sabbath. So, you see, this whole Sabbath controversy is hanging over the entire Feast of Tabernacles this whole time. And now Jesus intentionally goes out and heals a man on the Sabbath. There are other instances in John's, uh, sorry, in the Gospels where Jesus healed people on the Sabbath and intentionally did things on the Sabbath which were, which were rubs against the Pharisees. And we read three of them in Luke's Gospel. He healed, he walked through the fields on the Sabbath and plucked the grain and crushed the outside of the grain and ate the grain. Well, see, that's threshing, right? When you thresh wheat, you take a grain of wheat and you take the husk off it like that and eat the, the kernel or the nugget inside of it. That's threshing. You can't thresh on the Sabbath because that would be a violation of the Sabbath. So Jesus did that, and then they got mad at him about that. And Jesus rebuked them by quoting an Old Testament passage which showed that the Old Testament law was not given for man to serve, but some of those elements were given to serve man. And then Jesus said this in Luke chapter 6, verse 5. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And he was pointing out, I can do what I want on the Sabbath. I have authority over the Sabbath to use the Sabbath however I want to use the Sabbath. Then he healed the man with the withered hand, and then they wanted to destroy him because he healed a man on the Sabbath. Then in Luke 13, the woman bent over for 18 years, he healed her, and they wanted to destroy him for healing on the Sabbath. Then Luke 14, the man with dropsy, Jesus healed him, and they wanted to destroy him for healing on the Sabbath. They were watching him, and listen, on a Sabbath day, they watched him more intently than any other day of the week so that they could find an opportunity to accuse him for doing something on the Sabbath, which violated their Sabbath traditions. And the problem was not with the Sabbath itself, and the problem was not with uh, what Jesus did on the Sabbath. The issue was with their unbiblical view of the Sabbath. You see, if the Jews had had a biblical understanding and practice of the Sabbath, there would have never been any Sabbath controversy because Jesus never did anything to actually violate the, the exact Sabbath law. He walked all over their Sabbath traditions, but he never did anything to actually violate the Sabbath. But he did destroy their traditions. In fact, he paid no attention to their traditions whatsoever. They had taken what should have been a joyous day, and they had turned it into a legalistic opportunity for self-glorification. A joy that everybody should have looked forward to, the Sabbath. A day of rest from our work and our labor. A day to reflect upon what God has done and to rejoice in what God has done and to praise God for what He has done and just to reflect upon this gracious covenant that He has given to us. This covenant of works and life. And they just reflected on that and rested from it. should have been a day of joy, but it wasn't. Because they had added layer after layer of legalistic, self-righteous rules and regulations and tradition to it. It had become such an albatross around the necks of the people. It was more complicated than the U.S. tax code. In fact, that's a good analogy. Imagine celebrating April 15th every seven days. People dreaded the Sabbath. There was nothing, there was nothing releasing or glorious or praiseworthy about it. They had so perverted and so corrupted that day that nobody rejoiced in it. And Jesus walked all over their Sabbath traditions. Now, what had He done? Specifically, what had He done to violate their Sabbath traditions? Two specific things. Now, do you remember back in chapter 5? It actually took a whole Sunday just to go through what the true Sabbath was 
and all of their perversions of the Sabbath law, all the, the layer after layer and the loopholes and the exceptions and the exemptions and the do this and all of the rabbis and the, the leaders of Israel had put upon over the course of centuries what they had added on to the Sabbath. Do you remember that? I'm not going to go through it all again. What had Jesus done specifically to violate the Sabbath? Two things. Verse 14 tells us. He made clay. That's one. And he opened the man's eyes. That's two. Now, neither of those things violated the true Sabbath observance. But both of them violated rabbinic traditions. You were not allowed to make clay on the Sabbath. Do you know why? Because clay, to make clay, you had to knead together water and dirt. And see, that's kneading. And you weren't allowed to knead bread on the Sabbath because that is working. So to make clay or concrete or mud or to mix anything on the Sabbath was considered kneading. K-N-E-A-D-I-N-G, kneading something, and that was a violation of the Sabbath law. Second, the Pharisees prohibited the application of any medicine to anyone or healing anybody on the Sabbath unless their life was in immediate danger, which in this case, with the man born blind, his life was obviously not in immediate danger. And there were some rabbis, not all, but some rabbis who viewed, who thought that there were healing or medicinal qualities in saliva. So to take saliva and apply it to the eyes of somebody was to apply a medical remedy to somebody's condition on the Sabbath, and that was prohibited by the Pharisees because you couldn't do anything to somebody on the Sabbath to improve their condition. Because if somebody starts off here, and they end up here because of something you've done, then you have improved their condition, and that would be work. So for Jesus to apply saliva to a man's eyes was a violation of applying a medical salve to somebody whose life was not in immediate danger. And then second, to improve his condition by healing him, was to work on the Sabbath. And they viewed this as a violation of their traditions. That's why, by the way, that they opposed to healing the withered man's hand. Jesus didn't apply saliva there, did he? He didn't do anything except say, stretch forth your hand. And the man stretched it forth, but they still wanted to destroy him for that. Why? Because he had improved the man's condition on the Sabbath. Had he done it the next day or the previous day? No problem. But to improve his condition on the Sabbath, that was a violation of their Sabbath traditions. Now, why did Jesus provoke them? This kind of raises an interesting issue, doesn't it? Why did he provoke them? Did Jesus know it was the Sabbath? Do you think he got done with this miracle and said, oh, it was the Sabbath. I forgot it was the Sabbath. I should have waited till tomorrow. I should be more mindful of when the Sabbath is and when the Sabbath isn't. No, you see in Luke's Gospel, Luke 6, Luke 13, Luke 14, Jesus intentionally did these things on the Sabbath. He could have waited till the next day. This blind beggar, Jesus knew where he was at. Jesus found him later in the passage. He could have found him the next day and healed him and it wouldn't have been an issue. Why did Jesus intentionally do these things on the Sabbath? Let me suggest a couple of reasons. First, because Jesus was demonstrating that he is Lord of the Sabbath. You see that in Luke chapter 6? When Jesus says, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath, Jesus is essentially saying, look, I am the creator of the Sabbath as the I am who gave the law. I created the Sabbath. It's my day. I can do with it as I please. I can interpret it however I want. I can handle the Sabbath however it pleases me because I'm Lord of the Sabbath. Uh, the Sabbath was not created for me to serve. The cre- Sabbath was created to serve men and to serve me. So as Lord of the Sabbath, I can do whatever I want with it. He was demonstrating that. And he certainly had authority to do that, to do anything he wanted on the Sabbath, because it was his day. He instituted it. In fact, in John 5, that's the argument he makes when they get after him for healing the man at the pool of Bethesda. He says to them, the Father's been working until now, and I am working. What was he saying? God works on the Sabbath. Every Jew understands that. Do you realize that God works seven days a week? Upholding everything by the word of his power, right? Expending energy to keep his creation intact. God is always working, constantly working. He never takes a day off. Jesus pointed to that and said, and I am working on the Sabbath. I do what the Father does. Everything the Father does, he shows me, and I do the same work. 
And everything that I do, the Father is doing. The Father works on the Sabbath. I work on the Sabbath. It's my day. I'm Lord of the Sabbath. The second reason that Jesus did this was to show to them the ridiculous nature of their burdensome regulations for the Sabbath. To show to them the burden of what they had done on the Sabbath. Look, here was a group of people who, by their own perversion of the Sabbath, listen to this, had turned acts of mercy into crimes. By their own perversion of the Sabbath, they had made it a crime to do an act of mercy. And their own burdensome regulations on the Sabbath kept them from rejoicing in this man's healing. Which is why the neighbors aren't filled with joy at this man's healing. That's why the Pharisees are not filled with joy at this man's healing. That's why the parents are not filled with joy at this man's healing. Why? Because his healing was a crime. It was a violation of the Sabbath in their view. Well, Jesus healing people on the Sabbath and then their their resultant disdain for him and their desire to kill him demonstrated or showed to everyone how ridiculous the burdensome nature of their Sabbath requirements were. There's a third reason. To show the true observance of the Sabbath. To show what true Sabbath observance should have looked like. Was it ever a violation of the law to do an act of mercy on the Sabbath? It wasn't. Listen, can you think of a better use of a Sabbath day than to do something that alleviates a man's burden on the Sabbath day? Wouldn't that be the true meaning of the Sabbath? To do something to lift a burden from somebody? Can you think of a greater thing for Jesus to do on the Sabbath than to lift this oppressing physical burden of blindness from this poor blind man? Or to lift the physical oppression of that of that withered hand from the man with the withered hand? That's what true Sabbath observance would look like. The fact that the Jews had watched Jesus, they should have said this. They should have said, that's what the Sabbath looks like. To lift a burden, to help our fellow man, to do something praiseworthy to God, to do something to help somebody else so that the Sabbath is a day of rejoicing. To show the true, what true Sabbath observance would look like. And the fourth reason that Jesus did this was to expose their self-righteousness. The Sabbath was nothing but a means of glorifying themselves, self-righteous glorification. And Jesus exposed that by doing these miracles on the Sabbath so that they saw somebody whose burden had been lightened and they should have praised God. And what was their response? They hated both Jesus, the man who had done this deed, and they hated the people upon whom Jesus had done the deed, and they could have no joy in somebody's burden actually being lightened on the Sabbath. That was the perversion of the Sabbath law. Now, what Jesus has done presents them with a dilemma, and you're going to see this unfold. Look at verse 15. The Pharisees also were asking him again how he received his sight. Now, the term asking him again, that verb is in a tense that indicates a continual ongoing process of asking somebody something. In other words, it's not just one question. Tell us again how you received your sight. Not one question. John is compressing the dialogue here and giving us the the clue that these people were grilling him. They're asking him question after question after question about how he had received his sight. Tell us again about the clay. How did he mix the clay? What did he use in mixing the clay? Where did he pick up the clay? What was the special about the clay? What dirt did he use in doing this? To which the man would have just been able to say, I don't know, I couldn't see a thing. I mean, until I washed in the pool, I have no idea what was going on. I just know that clay was applied to my eyes. He said, go washed. I went and I see. It's really that simple. But they were asking him and grilling him over and over again. Tell us now how it is that you now see. And they won't drop it. They don't want to drop it. I think they're probably asking him these questions because they are trying to find fault with something that he says. You know how this works. You ask somebody a question one direction and then another direction, and then you just slightly alter the question a little bit, kind of ask the same question all over again. And why would you do that? Because you're looking for some inconsistency in the story, right? Something, Some new detail that you can go over with a fine-tooth comb and pick out. That's what they're doing with this man. They want to find out exactly what Jesus has done to violate the Sabbath, and they want to use this man 
as a witness to testify against his healer. That's what they're doing. They're getting the information, grilling him, asking him again, verse 15, how he received his sight. And he said to them, and you gotta love his, you gotta love his response to this. He said to them, he applied clay to my eyes and I washed and I see. You notice something about this man's response every time he's asked? It's, you know what, it's, it's getting shorter and shorter and shorter. The first time, the man who was called Jesus made clay, anointed my eyes. He said to me, go to the pool of Siloam. I went and washed and I went and I washed and now I see. That was his first response to the neighbors. Now with these men, it's shorter. He applied clay to my eyes. I washed. I see. I think the man is cluing into exactly what the Pharisees are after. He knows exactly what they're going after. And he's not giving them any more information than is absolutely necessary. you got to appreciate his boldness, don't you? This man is bold. He's standing in front of a body of people that could easily excommunicate him from the synagogue. He knows this. Later on in verse 22, his parents know this, and his parents were fearful. They didn't want to say anything to these people lest they be excommunicated from the synagogue. They didn't want to say anything positive of Jesus because then it might be twisted that they were somehow endorsing Jesus in his ministry and then they'd be out. But this man, knowing who they are and knowing what their power is, he's bold. He can't really deny the truth, can he? Or reality? He anointed my eyes with clay. I washed and I see. And later on, his testimony gets even shorter. This much I know. I was blind and now I see. Right? It just goes right back to the facts. Here are the facts and they are staring you in the face. I was blind. He gave me a command. I did it and now I see. It really is that simple. Just a short, succinct, to the point, bold testimony. This man does what his parents are not willing to do. And that is to stand up for the person who has healed him. Now look at their dilemma. Verse 16. Therefore, some of the Pharisees were saying, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, how can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? And there was a division among them. Now here's where you're going to have to kind of engage your mind in order to catch their theological dilemma that they are presented with. There's two groups, as they hear the man's testimony, they have heard enough that some of them have come to a conclusion. Now, obviously, verse 22 says they were already biased against Jesus. But they came to the conclusion, this man has violated the Sabbath, and therefore he is a sinner, and he is not from God. That's verse 16. They were saying this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. Now, had Jesus actually violated the Sabbath? No violation of the Sabbath whatsoever. To heal a man, Jesus hadn't done anything violating the Sabbath, but he had violated their Sabbath traditions. See, here's their problem. They equated all of their traditions with commandments of God. They didn't understand that it's just as bad to add to God's commandments as it is to subtract from His commandments. To take one away and say, you don't have to obey this, is just as bad as adding to them. And they had added layer upon layer of it. And Jesus had violated those, but not actually violated the Sabbath. But they equated their traditions with God's Word. They put them on the same plane, on the same bar. And so Jesus had violated the Sabbath as far as they were concerned. This man has violated the Sabbath. Therefore, he is not from God. So their syllogism is really simple. A true man of God would never violate Sabbath law. Jesus has violated Sabbath law. Therefore, Jesus is not a true man of God. You follow that logic? That's really simple. But listen, there's something even more more profound going on here. Follow this. If their traditions, their Sabbath traditions... Let's start, move back one step. If Jesus were from God and he walks all over and violates their Sabbath traditions, then what does that say about their Sabbath traditions? That would indicate to them exactly what God thought of their Sabbath traditions and all their laws. So if they confess that Jesus is from God, then they must abandon all of these traditions that they hold so dear. 
And they're not willing to do that. In fact, they're willing to believe the absurd, which is in verse 18. We'll look at that next week. They're willing to believe the absurd rather than to confess that Jesus is from God. Now, there is another group there. There's another group, and they say, verse 16, others were saying, how can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? Now, you can understand this syllogism as well. Some of those Pharisees, and it seems to be a small a small group, by the way, a small group because for the rest of this chapter, we don't hear from them. They make a statement here of this verse, the rest of the chapter, absent. The rest of the chapter is, unfolds as if this small group has either left the scene or they're watching from a distance or they're just not saying anything. But really, those who are in hostile to Jesus, they're the ones who act and move and do everything for the rest of the chapter. But this small group, they, they have watched what has unfolded and they have said this. No man can do these signs unless he is from God. So if he is a sinner, how then does he do what only God can do? Because they would look at the Old Testament, which we did several weeks ago, and say, only God can give sight to the blind. God is the one who gives sight. God is the one who takes sight away. This is evidence that this individual is from God and probably the Messiah. They came to that conclusion and said, if he does these signs, then he can't be a sinner. If he is a Sabbath breaker, how then does he have the power from God to do these signs? Because God does not authenticate blatant lawbreakers by giving them the ability to perform signs. So these two people both have the same evidence and the same testimony, these two groups, and they are both looking at the same thing from two entirely different viewpoints. You see that? And there is a division among them. And they don't know where to go with this division because this has created quite a controversy and quite a dilemma. So much so that they just have to ask the man, what do you say about him? Since you opened your eyes. You're in a better position than we are to tell us about this man. Why don't you go ahead and tell us about this man? Now I want you to notice something about this second group. And I, and I ask you this. This is... What I'm about to give you is entirely speculation. Okay, so don't think that you heard this here and don't go to the wall for this one. It's entirely speculation. Who was among this second group that was more, more receptive or reasonable toward Jesus? Who would have been among them? I think it's possible, though I wouldn't die for this, that Nicodemus was in this second group. And here's why I say this. Do you remember back in chapter 3, when Nicodemus came to Jesus by night, the very first words that Nicodemus said were these, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Right? Nicodemus looked at the signs and said, the signs tell me this man is from God. Now, whether Nicodemus is in this second group or not, we know he was a Pharisee. We know he had opportunity to be there. We know he would have been in Jerusalem because just a couple of days earlier, he defended Jesus at another council of the Pharisees when he said, our law does not judge a man before it hears from him and finds out what he's doing, does it? That's the end of John chapter 7. Nicodemus has already stepped up to the plate for Jesus and defended him. Very possible that what we're hearing here in this second group is the expression of men who are agreeing with Nicodemus. How can a sinner perform such signs? They know the truth. And so now they ask the man born blind, what do you say about him? Now this is a curious question. You know why? Because on any other occasion, these elitist, self-righteous, uh, religious rulers would have never thought of asking a poor, blind beggar to resolve a theological issue. Never. They would have never considered asking his opinion on anything. So why are they asking him here? It's possible maybe that they're trying to trick him. Tell us what you think about him. Maybe they want to do to him what they're going to do later on. That's to kick him out of the synagogue. Tell us what you think about him. Maybe this is the expression of the second group, the Nicodemus-ish group, who is asking him, you tell us what you think. Maybe by hearing his testimony, this second more reasonable group of Jews is hoping to sort of persuade some of the others. Or maybe this is just an expression of this group's utter consternation over what they're seeing. They cannot come to a resolve. How is it that this man can do the miracles 
on a Sabbath day? How is it that he violates our Sabbath law and yet has the power to do miracle after miracle which we see and hear about? They are, so, they are in such a dilemma, such a pickle. They are so consternated they don't know what to do. They just, finally, they just ask the man, what do you say about him since you opened your eyes? Look at the man's statement again. He's a prophet. He's a prophet. It isn't, there's no, there seems to be no doubt in the man's mind. There's no, well, maybe he's this. He doesn't seem to be shy about it at all. He's bold. In fact, you're going to see in verse 24 later on, this man schools these Pharisees in theology later in the chapter. He is a very bold man. He's a prophet. Now you say, that's, that's really not a good enough description of who Jesus is. I would agree with you, but keep in mind, this man has had limited exposure to Jesus. And I would say this, the word a prophet probably is the highest designation that this man would have known of to give to Jesus. That would have been the highest office that in his mind a man of God could hold to be a prophet. He is saying something of Jesus which was the highest accolade that he could give to Jesus. He is a prophet. And they, of course, will not accept this. They don't accept that Jesus was a prophet. Uh, This man has a growing understanding of who Jesus is and why he came. At first he said he's just a man named Jesus. Now he's come to the conclusion that he is a prophet. And he says that in the presence of all these Pharisees. But they're not willing to embrace that either, the fact that Jesus is a prophet. In fact, if you think about it, what this man has said to them gives them an out. Now listen, I told you there was a tremendous theological dilemma that these Pharisees were faced with. When the man says that Jesus is a prophet, he has presented them with an out for their theological dilemma. And here's their out. Now listen carefully. It was a common Jewish maxim, not a teaching of the Old Testament, nothing in the Proverbs, but it was a common Jewish maxim of the day that a prophet could violate Sabbath tradition. prophet didn't have to observe the Sabbath because he was a prophet. Now this man has just said Jesus is a prophet. Now that would agree with the second group that he comes from God and he speaks from God and it offers to the first group an explanation as to how this man could do the signs on the Sabbath day and violate their Sabbath traditions. You see, if the first group, those hostile to Jesus, were willing to concede that Jesus was a prophet, then they could explain that's why he violates our Sabbath traditions because as a prophet, he doesn't have to abide by the Sabbath. He can violate or go against the Sabbath as a prophet. So the man, in testifying that Jesus is a prophet, has just given them their out. If you admit that he's a prophet, then that would explain how you can have your Sabbath traditions. So he's given them a way of explaining how they can keep their Sabbath traditions, and yet this man could still do these miracles on the Sabbath. But see, that presents them with another dilemma. And maybe you see it right away. If Jesus is a prophet, then we have to listen to him, and we have to obey him, for he speaks from God. That's another dilemma. See, that they, they, they cannot concede that. They will not concede that. They will not concede that he is a prophet and that he speaks from God. And so they believe the most absurd thing we have read in John's Gospel yet. Verse 18, this is what we get to next week. We're not going to do it now. The Jews then did not believe it of him that he had been blind and received sight. You see, they will believe anything, just so long as it's not the truth. They did not believe it that he had been blind and had received his sight. They would not confess that he is a prophet. They would not confess that he came from God. And yet they would not abandon their Sabbath traditions. So there has to be some way of explaining all of this. And so then you wait for the black helicopters to come in and you hear the beating of the black helicopter wings. There must be some conspiracy. This man really wasn't ever blind. That's their explanation. Absurd, isn't it? You see, the truth was right in front of them for all to see. And who can see the truth now in this passage? The man who's formerly blind. He's the one who sees the truth. In fact, it's getting clearer and clearer for him all the time. Every encounter that he has with his people, the truth becomes more clear. But for those who can see, they can't see because they are blind to the truth. But listen, they are willingly blind. Willingly blind. They're willing to believe anything except for the truth. Let's pray together.
Our Father, again, we are reminded of the fact that we once were blind, and yet now we see those of us who have trusted Christ for salvation. We thank you that you have opened our eyes. It is all by your grace, for we would be in the same condition of these blind Pharisees, believing anything except the truth. Had it not been for your gracious working of your Spirit in regenerating us, in opening our hearts, and cleansing us from our sin, and renewing our spirits. We thank you, Father, that you have made us alive in Christ Jesus, all by your gracious work. We thank you that you have opened our eyes, because now we can see, we can see you, and we can see your word. We pray, Father, that you would confirm these things to our hearts to give us an appreciation again for all that we have received in Christ, for his graciousness, gracious character. We thank you for a God, the King, who obeyed the law on our behalf so that we could be delivered from the curse of the law. We thank you in his precious name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.